Chapter 8 of The Three Friends A Story of Rugby in the Forties by Arthur Gray Butler. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 8 A Change Cometh. A year and more had passed away, and Twining had left, happy in leaving Fleming, now well up in the sixth, head of the eleven, and best in football, while Gordon was a first rate scud much improved in pace and wind and pluck as good as ever he had also made himself a fair cricketer of the sticky order earning thereby the doubtful praises of the professional missed gordon he did swat at it so hard but the relations of the two friends were more variable than was quite agreeable as time went on and fleming's grace and charm of manner together with his skill in games made him the idol of the school the difference between them became more strongly marked, and the old friendship had to enter into a new phase. In truth, if the truth must be told, Gordon was too matter-of-fact and cold for his more social and lively friend. He would draw splendid caricatures of some of those who made up Fleming's circle, but after all, a caricaturist is not always the most pleasant of companions, and the caricaturist of one's friends is apt sometimes to touch a tender spot and leave a sore behind. So it happened that they occasionally quarreled. Both had a strong spice of mother's or father's temper in their composition, and on one occasion in a football match between North and South, of which sides they were the two leaders, they came to words together, and even for a moment to blows, an event long talked of, and creating amazement, almost horror, in the school. Then, as they sat alone in their studies that evening, feeling miserable and unnatural, O'Brien acted as go-between, and after slanging them both roundly as a pair of idiots, got them to come to supper in his study, and over a dish of rumbled eggs told them stories about the different ways of cooking eggs taught him by his grandmother, till they both laughed. "'Dear old Pat,' said Fleming, at last archly, "'have you really got a grandmother?' Not a bit of it, broken Gordon. She rode away on a broomstick two years ago, and I drew a picture of it. Don't you remember? Hush, boys, said O'Brien, with a mock pathos in his voice. Would ye deprive me of my ancestors? If you only would come to Castle O'Brien. This was too much for them. They knew there was no such place. They shouted. And then the ice once broken, they slid back into the old familiar ways, and verified O'Brien's saying that if it wasn't for Ireland, the gayer partner, Scotland and England would always be at loggerheads. Scotland would want to absorb England, and England would be awfully bored by Scotland. A pity they can't take things more easy like Patty. Thus, in and out, the friendship ranged, with frequent discords like a broken harmony. Gordon, worshipping Fleming, and knowing by heart all his scores and averages in cricket, as well as his runs in and goals kicked at football, but Fleming refusing to be tied exclusively to any one friendship, and seemingly as fond of dear old Pat or Tom or Harry as of his more devoted friend. The fact is that these summer friendships have a charm for one who is fond of cricket, which only cricketers can know. To wander arm in arm with a couple of friends on a well-kept ground, upon a balmy day, or rest under noble trees, shadowing the rich green sward, is always a pleasure. But when, in reply to your, what a catch that was, or what a lovely hit, there comes the immediate, by Jove, yes, or in shorter phrase, ripping, 
for those who have been only a few yards distant at the time, and have felt the thrill of that hit or catch, on which had turned the issue and winning of the match, then that delightful charm of sympathy is present, which in the other case is wanting. The quick response is like the sharp rebound of a new racquetball, where the wall is lively, as different as possible from the dull thud of a service, however hard and low, on a dead wall, which seems to take double time in reaching your adversary, and never shoots quick and fast home into the corner. So it was that Fleming, as keen a cricketer as ever lived, would often make Gordon think of himself discarded, though in truth he only yielded to that clannish feeling which makes comrades in war or games stick close together all the world over. And yet Gordon was of much use to Fleming. He kept the cricket accounts for himself, and guarded the money, a service which the less orderly habits of his friend rendered valuable. Also every now and then he would go to Fleming's study and tidy up a bit, arranging things in a way more approvable to his artist eye and nature. For books were not meant to lie on the floor, nor bats and balls on tables, above all when your study, all included, measures only seven feet by six, and fags, when employed as housemates to clean a study, are apt to be impatient of details. Then about this time there fell, like a thunderclap, a sudden blow on poor Fleming which changed his life. He had had a cough in the early spring which lasted on into May, and had an unpleasant sound. He was losing weight, moreover, as well as appetite, and even confessed to feeling tired by cricket, thing he would have thought impossible. But of course he thought nothing of it, and went on as usual. The discovery had to come from another quarter. One day, when having his extra work looked over by the young tutor before mentioned, the latter turned suddenly to him on hearing his hollow cough, and said, "'You don't look well, Fleming. What's the matter?' Fleming pooh-poohed it at first, but, after some kindly pressing, acknowledged he was not well, and the tutor, who knew about his early delicacy, was alarmed. Suppressing his fears, however, he merely said, "'I'm going over to Leamington this afternoon to play tennis, and, as it is an off-day for your cricket, come with me and see a doctor friend of mine, will you?' So they went. Fleming was thoroughly overhauled by the doctor, and then, in the presence of the tutor, was told something of his condition. It was not a cheering account, and the doctor looked serious on hearing that there was lung delicacy in his patient's family, who had therefore taken up their quarters in South Devon. However, to Fleming himself he merely prescribed complete rest, and abstinence from exciting work of all sorts, and assured him with grave kindness that he must give up cricket matches and let his system, for some time at all events, have entire rest. "'For how long?' asked Fleming quickly. "'For six months,' was the reply, "'and then I should like to see you again.' "'For six months!' "'It seemed a lifetime. "'The boy quivered all over. "'But at your age,' pursued the doctor in a soothing voice, "'a few months, more or less, need hardly be considered in comparison "'with a long and useful life.' What are six months in hospital to a wounded soldier, when he is thereby restored to an active and honorable career? Patience, my young friend, patience, but no half-measures. Then taking leave of his patient, in whom he seemed to be much interested, he said to the tutor, whom he detained, that the case was a critical one, which could have but one end if the mischief in the lungs was not arrested, 
and that the parents should be at once informed of their son's condition. As they walked away, Fleming said in a low voice to his tutor, "'What did he say to you? "'You must give up games. "'There is no choice in the matter.' "'Like Goodwin,' he asked, "'a well-known case of an athlete "'who had to leave school and go to Madeira.' "'Not, I hope, so bad as that,' replied the other. "'You may stay on at Rugby and enjoy your life there "'if you are prudent.' "'I could play quietly,' said Fleming, "'pleadingly, with someone to run for me. "'Could I not?' The tutor shook his head. Then at last, as they were seated in the public garden, the words slipped slowly and mournfully from Fleming's lips. Shall I die? Did he mean I should die? No, a thousand times no, said his friend, eagerly. If you only live a guarded and careful life for a time, you may grow up to be a strong and serviceable man at no very distant period. But all depends now upon your resolution and strength of mind. Can you face it? Fleming looked up and saw a fly struggling in a spider web. Instinctively he raised his stick and struck the prisoner free. His friend smiled. Would have been all over in a moment, said Fleming, if I had left it. And then turning with that smile, which men and boys alike find so irresistible, he said, Will you write and tell my father? It would be a sad blow to him. I will do nothing foolish in the meantime. So it was agreed that the tutor, with the consent of the headmaster, should write to Fleming's father. And when the two parted, after their return to rugby, the tutor said, pressing Fleming's hand warmly, Remember, I am always your friend, if you will let me. And remember also the doctor's words, Patience, and no half-measures. That evening, when Gordon came to his friend's study, eager for the news, he found a great change. Everything was in order all the cricket things stored away out of sight, except one favorite bat, which Fleming, who looked pale and exhausted, was nursing fondly on his knees. Well, said Gordon inquiringly as he entered, what is it? No more games, Alan, no more games. No more excitement or hard work of any kind. To live like an oyster with mouth open, eating and drinking, tied in. To lie quiet, sleeping and digesting, tied out. That's about it, old fellow. Hard lines, isn't it? And then, as Gordon stood speechless, gazing at him, drinking in his worn look, which he had never before noticed from the brilliancy of his coloring, Fleming said softly, Do you remember, Alan, that seventy-four not out I made with this old bat? With the sixer to square leg, to be sure I do. Well, I was thinking that if I got well pegged in a new handle— like this poor old thing, I might still be fit again some day. And he looked inquiringly at his friend. You, of course, replied Gordon hoarsely, but what is it? Do you believe him? Yes, he tapped me all over and stethoscoped me, and then, oh, Alan, he looked awfully grave, just as the other doctor did when my poor sister died. It's, his voice choked, he could not finish. What is it? It threatens to be consumption. Gordon groaned. Did he tell you so? No, but he said I was to do nothing for six months and then see him again. Just what they said to her. I know what that means. It has always been hanging over me from the first, and now it has come. But you are so strong, it can't be true. Didn't he give hope of some sort? Fleming brightened a little. Well, he said, I might get strong again if I did nothing for a long time, 
and lived by clockwork like a miserable invalid. To coddle myself, to live in cotton wool, to run in leading strings, and only eighteen. It's awfully hard. Gordon revived a little. Oh, if that's all, we'll do him. The doctor seemed the enemy, not the disease. We'll fight it, step by step, Flem, and you see if we don't win. Hang it all. There never was anything you couldn't do if you tried. And look here, we'll go to the lodge, our fishing place in Scotland in the holidays, and catch Solomon. It's splendid air there. It would make a cripple run. And you, Flem, a Hercules like you. He looked at his friend's figure, so firmly knit, so beautifully made, admiringly. If we don't beat that doctor, yes, beat him in a single innings, I'll drown myself in Bilton Pool. And away he went to talk it over with O'Brien, and settle on a joint plan of campaign. When O'Brien first heard the strange news about Fleming, he laughed outright that anyone should be ill for more than a few days, especially if he stayed out first lessons with a note for no lessons, seemed to him so absurd that he could not treat the matter seriously. Above all, when he thought of Fleming, their leader in all games, Fleming with his gay spirits and athletic frame, being thus obliged to coddle himself and do nothing, he felt disposed to laugh the thing out of court as a joke of the first water. But when Gordon, who could, as his old Scotch keeper said of him, bring any dog to heel, if you give him time, explained the matter, and reminded him of the death of Fleming's sister, which had happened not long before. Then he rushed, Irish fashion, to the opposite extreme, and almost cried for grief. He could not imagine what it all meant, but the fact remained that Fleming had to give up cricket, and they would have to play the rest of their matches, and above all the match at Lord's, without his famous batting or presiding skill. It was awful bad luck, and as for dear old Flem himself, he fairly broke down when he thought of him. However, he entered warmly into Gordon's schemes, and agreed that they should all three spend the summer at Glenlickockchan, and he would hold Fleming's rod, gaff his fish, carry his basket, and act generally as his bodyguard and big dog, always about him to do his bidding. Nothing he would like so much. Carry! He would carry Flem himself if he wanted. He was so beastly strong. As to the school at large, the news spread rapidly and was received with consternation. A good many disbelieved the whole story. One son of Anak, before mentioned, proposed to go over to Leamington and give the doctor a good thrashing. What right had he to go frightening people in that way? Others, the eleven, suggested that he should have someone to run and field for him, while he only went to the wicket and hit sixers. But to all this, Fleming only smiled and shook his head. He had been to the headmaster and heard from him those kind yet strong and earnest words of counsel which, coming from one so lately at death's door himself, were doubly pathetic and convincing. And he was of too proud a nature to care to talk about himself. He made all necessary arrangements, appointing one to manage the field in great matches, while he looked on ready to advise, if need be, but more often he remained seated on the island, with a friend or the young tutor beside him, keenly and wistfully noting all the various changes of the game. It had always been his way to restrain himself. You had to watch him very closely to guess what was going on within. But yet, wherever he was, the eleven all felt his presence, and did as they would have done had he been there to lead them. Only, as Pat O'Brien said, a good deal better, too. As to outside feeling, 
only one brief letter shall be quoted, which expresses well enough the common feeling of the school. It was from Twining. Blank College, Oxford. Dear old fellow, I could hardly believe it when I heard it. You, the brightest, strongest feather of our wing, torn from us just when most needed. It is awfully sad for you, for us, for all. It seems as if that big elm down by the schoolhouse were broken by the wind, and only a poor old stump left us in its place. But cheer up, old man. Wherever you are, there'll be always something good to live with and to look at, and, as all your friends here are saying, we'll soon have you up among us, as jolly and strong as ever, ready to play against Cambridge and hit their crack bowling over Lord's Pavilion. Hoping to see you soon, yours affectionately, Cyril Twining. Moreover, as hero-worship at school is still happily not extinct, it may not be amiss to mention, among other humble efforts to comfort the fallen, the offering from a small fag in the schoolhouse of a bait-can full of live roach and gudgeon, in case Fleming wanted bait for fishing. There was an awfully good pike just below the planks, as big as— Here he kept separating his hands, as imagination kindled more and more widely apart, till the pike grew to a perfect monster. As big as that, at last, he said, when he could stretch no farther. And Fleming sent the little fellow away quite happy, with a friendly pat on the shoulder, and a few words of thanks. And let us not forget also Mr. Two, the butcher, the master of Scraggs, who sent up special sweetbreads for him from time to time, anything to get Mr. Fleming well again, and the old dog was always at his service when wanted. In short, human kindness is never rightly known till you are ill. At other times the world gives you a blank check to be filled up when needed, but with the remark in passing, we hope it will never be wanted, which remark may be understood in divers ways. But meanwhile our hero found himself work. Boys do not mope or moon. They are worth anything. In many ways. First he set himself to improve the lower school cricket, instructing a young bowler how to make the ball spin and twist by artful disposition of the fingers, and above all teaching him not to tire or over-bowl himself, which, as O'Brien said, was just spoiling all the young thoroughbreds, making them stale and old before their time and the little fellows all thought it was out of kindness to them. He at all events did not look on them as merely made to run after balls for their betters. But he, Fleming, was thinking of the future, of the use these young bloods would be some day to the big elevens of the house and school, and the great fight with Marthabone and elsewhere, and of lost matches picked out of the fire by a good defense, and the cheers greeting a successful bowler when ball after ball is sent down with some trick of pace or break which beats even the best bat at a great crisis of the game, when there's only three to tie and four to win. And then again, sometimes in the long evenings, he would amuse himself by teaching Gordon how to hit. This he did with the aid of the professional, by bowling himself half volleys to the off and leg, and thus tempting him to give up his defensive policy and let out at them. Open your shoulders, time your ball, take it out on the hop or volley, there! All these mysteries or open secrets of cricket, which come so naturally to some boys, had to be learnt by Gordon. He was one of those whose native caution leads them to thinking of getting runs as a temptation and a loose ball as a snare, till they lose the art of punishing altogether. But under Fleming's tuition, he too acquired a new nature, and though still what is called a stick, 
he would at times astonish the bowler by sending him out into the country, so that two fags were needed to return the ball. Many were the lookers-on on these occasions, glad to see their old favorite alive again, and not the least happy was O'Brien, who called it doing the doctor. But Fleming, who had always said Gordon had it in him, was happiest of all. Add to this the more friendly relations that he brought about between the schoolhouse and other houses, their hereditary enemies. Some houses at great schools always hate one another. It is a sacred tradition, a law of the Medes and Persians, a custom consecrated by time. And when year after year they met in battle in October, the old custom found fresh incentive in mutual assaults of hacking matches, until those beasts was the mildest term of reproach in which they thought and spoke of one another. And it was often a surprise in afterlife to find what good fellows there were among those whom you had regarded as your natural enemies, and what fools you both had been to regard one another with such suspicion and ill-will. All this Fleming helped to soften by interchange of hospitalities, until at last the old hatchet was buried, and the idea of natural enemies gave way to friendliness and intercourse. And this genial method of forgetting sores and grievances was so successful that at last O'Brien, chief advocate of hacking and strangling, walked arm in arm with their chief adversary in the quadrangle, and even stopped to give him glimpses through the door of the sacred precincts of the schoolhouse hall. It was not much to look at when seen, but hitherto it had been effectively closed to outsiders, as by a great wall of China. If a ball of any kind went into it, it was at once confiscated. The thrower of it presumed to follow. He had a tale to tell afterwards, which, as Herodotus, the father of history, says, it is not lawful to utter. What happened? Oh, explanation went no further. End of chapter 8